Wonderful to be here with you. My name's Greg. I'm one of the ministers at OEC. Uh, I look after church at four. And so this is very, very early for me. Um, so, I, yeah, but it is great, so great to be with you um, and opening this passage with you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonder of your word. We thank you so much that um, you are a God who speaks. And so help us to listen. Help us to listen uh, with hearts that want to change with hearts that want to know you better, that hearts that want to love you more and appreciate more of who you are and what you've done for us and respond in ongoing repentance and faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, kids, there's going to be three pictures that will come up on the slides, um, and I'll let you know when those are the ones that you'd like to, that I'd love to see you draw. Uh, and at the end of the service, I'd love to see your pictures that you draw, um, but I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring attention to the ones that will come up on the screen that I'd love you to draw for me. Um, so, today, the parable that we're looking at, we're going to be focusing on the parable uh, that goes from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Um, and it's one of the most famous parables of the Bible, a wonderful story that really strikes to the very heart of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It strikes to the heart of the very character of God. Now, over time, people have done a lot of work to sort of break up the Bible into manageable pieces. So breaking up the books into chapters, breaking up the chapters into verses, but that wasn't enough. The modern publishers have then broken up the books into sections and given those sections headings. And it makes it really easy to find things. Uh, Now, some of those titles, some of those headings are helpful. Some of them are just plain unhelpful. They're not part of the inspired word of God. Um, They're just simply someone's take on what that section is all about. Now, I want to put yourself, I want you to put yourself in in the shoes of one of those publishers of the Bible. And you have this passage from chapter, uh, chapter 15, 11 to 32. What title would you give it? What title would you give it? I'm sure in your Bibles there already is one, but I wonder what title you would have given it. I think the pointy end of this parable is so often missed, uh, in part because we are just so familiar with it. I think there's one big question that this parable asks of us, a big lesson it wants us to hear, but we're going to come to that later. What we're going to do as we go through this story is we're going to work through three possible titles for this story, Three different perspectives or lessons we can learn from it. And we, uh, important lessons that we need to learn from it. All of them valid, but I think there's a, there's a better title. Now, the first title that I've given this one, um, The Parable of the Lost Son. That's the first picture that will come up. There it is there, kids. If you want to start drawing that, that'd be great. Now, I don't think it's the best title, but it's not altogether wrong. After all, as you step through the story, He's in every verse, isn't he, just about? He's the main character of the story, it seems. Jesus introduces the characters in the story. Let's, let's talk about the, the parable of a lost son. He, the, Jesus introduces the characters as a man and his two sons who together work the field, they shepherd the flock, they run the herd. But before long, we get a profoundly sad picture of a relationship between the father and one of his sons. The younger son despises his dad. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, when does a son get a share of the estate? When dad's dead. But really he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were gone. 
He's had enough of life with his family and he wants out. What does dad do? He's got every right to refuse his son, but he doesn't. He divides his estate between the two sons and gives this arrogant, good-for-nothing young man everything he wants. It's as if all his birthdays really do come at once. And the young man doesn't waste any time. It's as if he can't wait to be gone. He gathers all his stuff. We saw it in the kids' talk, didn't we? He gathered all his stuff and he walks away as quickly and as far away as he can. He wants to be rid of his dad and live his life his way. And if that's not dishonouring enough for his father, the way he uses his money brings further dishonour on his father. He does what he wants to do. He does it when he wants to do it. He lives the life that so many today would call freedom. Celebrates life. He worships pleasure. And in doing so, brings shame on his father. You could just imagine people walking past and or getting to know him and thinking, I wonder whose son that guy is? Bring shame on his dad. Whose boy is that? What the father had worked so hard to achieve is gone in a moment. And then, then it happens, doesn't it? Disaster strikes. We're told that often bad things come in threes and we see bad things come in threes here. Firstly... His money runs out. His whole life was made of money. Then suddenly he goes to the ATM, looks at the receipt, and there's three bucks left. Destitute. Not just that, the second thing happens. Severe famine hits the whole country. The whole country is plunged into recession and despair. At the very moment, he has no ability to fend for himself. Jobs are scarce. The only job he can get is feeding pigs, which for a Jewish man is like two steps below a poo scraper in a, in a horse shed. Like, this is terrible. He just has to do it. Then the third thing happens. It's easy to miss it. It's at the end of verse 16. No one gives him anything. This young man is worthless and completely and utterly alone. No one cares. Now, when we read about the despicable state of this poor man, how do you feel? You feel pity for him. Well, I hope you do feel pity for him, but there's a stronger feeling that we need to feel that we should get as well, and that's a profound feeling of justice for this man. This young man gets what he deserves. This poverty, this shame, he's poured shame on his dad. He deserves the shame of rotten pig slots being poured over his head, doesn't he? That's how he's treated his dad. He's treated his father like scum and he ends up like the scum of the earth. Justice. What we see happen here. The young man gets what he deserves. Finally, the son sees himself as he truly is. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, he says to himself, mapping like one of your hired servants as he practices his I'm so sorry speech. And I think as we read that, we should be thinking, too right, you don't deserve to be called a servant of your father. You don't, you don't deserve to be a slave of your father. You have forfeited the rights of being a son. You did this when you turned your back on your father and brought total shame on your father's head. But notice what the son realises. He realises he has profoundly wronged his father, yes, and he's profoundly wronged his God realises he's helpless. There's nothing he can do to get himself out of this mess. Worthless and empty. He has nothing to offer. So all he can do, throw himself at the mercy of the father. Father owes him nothing. 
There's nothing he can do to earn his father's favour. And so he practices his I'm so sorry speech and he sets off home, father's house. The long way off, he looks up and he sees his dad running towards him. He must be wondering what's going to happen next. Is he going to clip me over the ear and send me away? He knows that's what he deserves. The father has every right to do that, to disown him, to reject him. His son rejected him. It would be right for him to reject his son. It would be just. But as, he, as the son sees him coming closer, he sees the massive grin on his face and he seems almost crying with joy. What's going on, he's wondering. And his, and his father comes to his son and the son begins his I'm so sorry speech but doesn't even end it. And his dad, just overwhelmed with joy, just wraps his arms around him, kisses him, cascading with joy, rushes him home, throws the party. The son has received then all the benefits of sonship, the love, the feasting, the clothing, the ring. It's as if he's become the son of a king because really in practice that's exactly what he's become. That's the story of the lost son. What lessons can we learn from this story? Well, here's one. It's really a story about God and the way that he welcomes the lost. So no matter what you've done, you can turn back to God. This son could not have done any more than he did to dishonour his father, yet even that is not enough to mean that he couldn't come back. And the same is true of us. If you're here today and you feel that God couldn't forgive you, that God couldn't accept you, couldn't love you, you've simply done too much bad stuff, maybe there's one thing that you've said or done that just keeps haunting you and plagues you and you just feel so unworthy, you need to hear this. You are unworthy. You are unworthy. We all are. The prodigal son had come to the point where he realised there was nothing he could give, nothing he could do to make himself worthy of the Father. God doesn't accept us because we're nice, because we're worthy, because we're good. The first step to us being accepted by God is to realise that we're not worthy, that we're not good. And that the way we treat him is like the way that this young man treated his dad. The younger son wanted to take every good thing the father gave him and run away as far as he could and live life the way that he wanted to. We do the same. God has given us life. He showered us with blessings, but we want to live life our way without him. Or at best with him out there somewhere, letting us do what we want to do and live the way that we want to live. It's only once we realise that this is a terrible way to treat God and we do not deserve his love it's only when we realise our unworthiness that we can come running to the Father and he will always welcome us home no matter what we've done. And that's all because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the penalty paid for the way that we treated him, that we could be welcomed back to the Father. Yes, you are unworthy, but that makes you the very kind of person that God loves to welcome home an unworthy sinner who wants to come back to God and be his servant. And he'll make you not just his servant, bring you into his family, make you his son, his daughter. So never let your guilt tell you you can't come back to God. Run to him. Stop running away. Take that lesson, the parable of the lost son. But while these are important, are important lessons in the parable, we haven't actually yet hit the centre of what this parable is really all about. 
The heart of this parable is still yet to come. So take two, the parable of the angry son. Here's the next picture I'd love you to draw, kids. Uh, what we've seen in this series of parables of Jesus is really the importance of context in understanding what the parable is really all about. So what's the context of this? We actually read it. Have a look back at verse 1 of chapter 15. What's going on that prompted Jesus to tell these parables? Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, and Jesus speaks this parable to them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, because they're whinging about the fact that Jesus welcomes sinners. People unworthy of God's love as they see it. So this is the parable of the angry son. Have a look at the way the parable ends. Go to verse 28. You can see it there. The older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in, so his father goes out, pleads with him. But he answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed any of your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours, who's squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. I want us to notice the difference between the younger son and the older son at this point in the story. The younger son recognises that his father owes him nothing. But the older son thinks his father owes him everything, even though he's already received his inheritance. In verse 12, the father divided the inheritance between the two boys. And he's got the high to say, Dad, you gave me nothing. The younger son realised that he had sinned against the father terribly and begs for mercy. The older son turns his back on his dad and sees him as an unfair master. Not a father, an unfair master. And himself as a slave. The younger son will do anything he can now to be in the presence of his father and the older son wants to have nothing to do with him. And at the end of the story he's outside. The younger son accepts the hand of the father's forgiveness and love. The older son rejects it, preferring instead to stay outside. He's angry at the compassion of the father. He's, he's offended by the character of his father, just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are at Jesus. We will do well to consider the character of the older son, and we will do that soon. But even now, even after looking at the context and the audience of the parable and what it's saying to them, we still haven't yet hit the centre of what this parable is really all about. The parable is really about God. That's who it's about. This parable at the heart is a parable of the forgiving and rejoicing Father, and that brings us to our third picture. We need to see the massive difference, not just between the older son and the younger son, but really the older son and the father. That's what's highlighted here. The older son is furious that the father would accept this good-for-nothing brother of his. In fact, he doesn't even call him that, does he? Your son, he said. The father overflows in cascading joy as he sees the lost son return. Notice the complete stark opposite of responses to what the son has done. Coming back. The older son fumes at the father as the father explodes with joy. And this celebration of the father is something that just punctuates every single parable in this chapter. Have a look at these verses. Verse 5, with the lost sheep. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Verse 6, rejoice with me, he says. I've found my lost sheep. You see the next one, parable of the lost coin. Verse 7, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. 
Verse 9, with a lost coin. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Then again, voice, verse 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You can just hear that happen. The rejoicing that echoes through these parables. Verse 23, with a lost son. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's have a feast, let's celebrate. Verse 24, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found. Verse 32, we had to celebrate. We just had to. So another way to work out the significance of a parable is look for repetition, and you see it here very clearly, don't you? Celebrate, rejoice, give thanks. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, are being sternly rebuked because they don't have the heart of God. They are not like the God they think they worship. God is one who celebrates, who chucks a party. He loves welcoming and forgiving sinners. And for the Pharisees, not to be like that shows how, how out of kilter they are with God. They don't know the God that they say that they worship. They don't respond like he does. In fact, the character of God offends them. They want to have nothing to do with a God like that. So what do we learn about God from this parable? God yearns the lost to return to him. Verse 20, we see that the father is on the doorstep of the house looking for the son, even though he has brought great shame on his name and dishonour. Loves his son, welcomes him home, longs for him to return. He wants us to come, our God does. He wants us to come and realise how terribly we've treated him and come, sorry, seeking mercy. God cares loves, longs for those who rejected him, offended him to come back and he celebrates every time one does. He always welcomes sinners who come seeking mercy. At the heart, this is the parable of the loving, compassionate, forgiving, celebrating father. What's the big question that this parable asks? The big question, big point that Jesus is making in this parable? It's this, are we like the Pharisees or are we like God? That's the big question. Do we grumble when God saves sinners or do we have a heart of God that celebrates when the wicked come to him? When we look at the Pharisees who grumble at Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners, you know, we shake our heads. We know Jesus is the good guy and the Pharisees are the bad guys. We know that in the story, don't we? And we shake our heads. How, how out of touch with their God could they be, we say to ourselves. We know God longs for the sinner to come to him and find forgiveness. We celebrate when people become Christians, don't we? It just brings us great joy in our hearts, doesn't it? Of course it does. Nothing makes us happy then to see people come to Christ brought from death to life, from being enemies to being God's sons and daughters. Let's have another look at the Pharisees and how they're different to God. The Pharisees were people who were deadly serious about righteousness. That's why they didn't associate with sinners and tax collectors. In their pursuit of righteousness, what they had done is cocooned themselves from the world and surrounded themselves with the fellowship of those who, like them, appeared righteous. That's what they did. That's why they didn't welcome the sinners. What is God like in the first two parables of, those, of the lost sheep and the coin that was lost? The shepherd left the other 99 to go and seek out the one. And, and, the, and the lady sought out to find the coin and then threw a party to celebrate. Throughout these parables, God is not just the one who celebrates when the sinner is found. He is the one who seeks out the lost to save them. 
That's why Jesus came. He says as much four chapters later as he brings salvation to another lost son, to Zacchaeus. Luke 19 verse 9, it'll come up on the screen. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Unlike the Pharisees who prefer the company of their own kind and rejects sinners, God loves sinners, seeks them out, save them. And you now begin to feel the pointy end of this parable. Are we like the Pharisees or are we like God? That's the question that's asking. Yes, we rejoice when the sinner is saved, but do, do we really seek out the lost to save them like God does? Or do we prefer the company of the righteous to the point where we, we've cocooned ourselves from the tax collectors and sin? Do we practically live like Pharisees? Do we, do we need to let the joy and celebration of seeing the sinner saved feed our efforts to actually relate with people who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ like we do? and bring them to him. We need to see our mission to our lost world and our lost city relationally. Most people who come to Christ come to him over many years and many conversations. It takes time. Chances are it did with you too. We need to pray for opportunities to deepen relationships so we can talk about more significant things than the fact that the time changed overnight. We need to create opportunities to find out what people think and what they believe. Ask those questions. What do you believe? I'd love to know. That will create opportunities for you to share what you believe too of the great sacrificial love of God who loves to welcome sinners. Create opportunities to invite people to church, to invite people to Bible study, invite people to life course and Christianity explored. Let's pray that we would be just like that. Father God, we thank you for this parable. We thank you that we can look at it again and think about what it says about you. We praise you that you are a God who loves to welcome sinners and celebrates when one comes home. And we thank you that you did that for those of us here who trust and love you. And we pray for those here who might not trust and love you yet. We pray that they would see the wonder of who you are and come running, knowing that they're unworthy, knowing that you will welcome them and love them and forgive. Father, help us to be not like the Pharisees who cocoon ourselves in a righteous huddle. Help us instead to reach out to the lost that we would speak the wonderful message of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you too would save them. Amen.